Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On one of my favorite platforms for engaging my intellectual curiosity, Noema Magazine, a recent article explores the ways urban designers and architects are challenging the entrenched hierarchies that prevent citizens from taking a decisive and collaborative part in processes that shape their cities. How might we move away from top-down and often austere approaches to urban design and towards the flux, adaptability, and wildness we see in nature? This wonderful article enters my orbit at a time when I've been reading and researching about what scholar Jack Halberstam calls a politics of collapse. It organizes around the idea that in the destruction of our urban environments, we might find ways of reigniting our imaginations about the world we can build in its place. And who better to explore collapse, imagination, and world building than with writer, cultural producer, and award-winning arts educator Farzana Khan. Farzana's work centers community health, repair, and self-transformation, and is rooted in disability justice, survivor work, and trauma-informed practices. She co-founded and leads Healing Justice London, which works to dignify lives made vulnerable and to cultivate public health provisions for collective liberation. We share a love for the poetic wisdom of Kevin Kwashi and language and practices that engender tenderness. And our conversation today explores how Farzana and the team at Healing Justice London are thinking through and building new infrastructures that respond to the ongoing needs of vulnerable communities. Undergirding this work is Farzana's commitment to holding and facilitating spaces that invite change through a deeper engagement with the world of feeling and wisdom in our bodies. We discuss the importance of attending to our grief, mobilizing with an improved class consciousness, and the long work of uninternalizing hundreds of years of colonial thinking. Farzana calls on us to refuse the individualizing thrust of the colonial regime so we can then free ourselves for the transformative work of extending ourselves to each other's aliveness. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Farzana Khan. Farzana, I think you know, but it bears saying um, to you and to listeners what an honor, a supreme honor it is to have you 
on Busy Being Black. Thank you so much for accepting this invitation. I'm I'm buzzing. It's an honor for me. I'm literally like similarly buzzing. I I know this is going to be so special. So thank you for the invitation. It was a heartbeat, quick response. So yeah, thank you. Um, speaking of heartbeats, um, to open my conversations on this show, I love to ask all of my guests the same question. How's your heart? You know what? Today my heart is spacious. It's feeling very cheeky. Um, it's also feeling very curious. And as always, it, you know, we briefly touched uh, on this, but just, uh, you know, Grenfell coming up, but there's an element of, of tenderness and holding. So holding all of those things in, in the heart space. I love the complicated feelings, right? And the contradictory feelings. And I, I think I speak about this on the show a lot, actually, this idea that every day I feel like I'm learning that the complexity of my feelings is a good thing. It's not something to run away from. And that the sorting and sifting of multiple emotions at the same time actually helps me place my pain or my joy a little bit more specifically, right? I can attribute it to someone, something, an idea. Um, Yeah, I'm feeling quite enchanted at the minute, not only because we're having this... um, conversation finally um (laughs) but because the sun is shining and i got to see the signets the other day i've been paying attention to these um and regular listeners to the show will know how delighted i get when i see baby swans but um (laughs) yay i love the birds (laughs) i love them so much Um, (laughs) i've been um watching the this pair of swans on their nest, like the, I, I could see the nest on my way to the shop and I would just kind of sit there at the river and kind of just watch this swan sitting there on, on those eggs. And then one day I went back and I was like, oh my God, the swan is gone. That means the, the cygnets are here. <laughs> so I was like running up and down the river <laughs> looking for the cygnets, like they must be oh. here. And I found them and I got a video of them and it really lit me up. I think <laughs> they're just so, they're so delightful. And so it's, it's that time of year when I feel like I come to life in the heat and in the yeah. sunshine. And it's great to see so much other life also thriving. Absolutely. So, so beautiful. We're having this conversation uh, two days before the six-year anniversary of the Grenfell Tower fire. And I want to say here that anniversary feels like the wrong word. Anniversary to me feels yeah. like a celebration. Um, I don't know what else, what other word to use. Um, but I'd like to hand over this space to you. Um, there may be no consolation on days like today. But where might we begin? Um, you know, there's, there is no consolation for the profound loss and violence that the Grenfell community have experienced and continue to experience. And um, mm-hmm. you started off with this invitation and reminder of the, of the birds. And um, recently, a phenomenal artist Sahed Rahel 
had shared something which was news to me was um, that when birds in the morning, when you hear them sing, they're doing roll call. They're saying, I'm here. I love this 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 declaration of, of here, of aliveness. And for those of us that are here, what do we do? Um, and, and really, how do we show up in allyship and um, in this moment? And I think for those that are here um, today, the invitation that I invite myself to first and foremost is what a, what is it that I can be doing in the direction that Grenfell is never again? What are the, the resistances that I can be involved in, particularly on a class struggle level? Because I think that for me, one of the biggest things that was not revealing, I wasn't struck by it, but the, the kind of deafening silence of how we didn't mobilize at the scale that we should have when it comes to Grenfell, that, you know, the genocidal ways in which our state has organized this horrific housing system. One of the key sites of, of allyship is like, how do we do that work of allying with working class communities? Well, we've got rampant gentrification where people are experiencing habitual loss and that those lives that have no choice but to be in social housing are dignified, that we show up for those lives, that when we talk about abolition and we talk about community care, we, you know, we're quick to look at like the estate, we're quick to take pictures next to an estate, we're quick to like do all those kind of like activisty lefty moment things where we're like, yes, the ends, but actually like how do we do that work of, of deep dignifying activation and repair of community spaces and the life force that social housing um, can be and is and dignify those spaces. You know, there were community organisers like Ed Defan and others in, in North Kensington who were organising um, and, you know, advocating for their rights. Why weren't those voices loud enough? And even when we had such a violent um, act of state violence, why wasn't it enough to mobilise us in a way that it should have? And so really holding the grief and the reality of, of that, how do we really do that deep humanizing and extension towards each other's kind of humanity and getting really like specific about that? How do we show up in these class conversations? Because right now with mass austerity, we have a lot of middle-class folks experiencing the use of food banks and precarious housing. When is enough enough and why can't the voices and the bodies and experiences of those that we should be listening to are already at those sharp edges enough. And that is a point on dignity and humanity for me. And then making space for the grief and the complexity around all of that. And and, and these words are still not enough, like it's not enough. I think the dignity and the humanity is an important point because even though there are more people who previously would never have had or encountered such precarity that they would need to utilize a food bank that still hasn't unlocked a compassion and empathy or action from more people, right? There's something about the British psyche, I think, that prevents um, the kind of class organizing that maybe was experienced in the 80s, right? And late 70s and and 80s, if we think about the work that Asa Vanandan and his teams documented at the Institute of Race Relations, like there doesn't seem to be 
I don't know. I, I think that sometimes there's something about Britishness which is so beaten down, right, that people just don't know how to imagine more than than what we have. It is something about the psyche of Britishness. And, you know, sometimes I talk about it as the deep institutionalization because we are the brain child of colonization in many ways. And so there's something about the way that Britishness is so deeply entrenched in complicitness, but it's also like not me, like it's not me, it's over there. It's this thing that's over there. And the way that it kind of holds up its its institutions and in its structures is either neutral, invisibilized or benevolent. So a lot of the times, you know, when we think, you know, even around, uh, you know, how a lot of our public institutions are sites of harm for racialized folks, for working class folks, like you'd presume public housing, social housing would be this great, you know, social good and I believe in social housing I grew up in social housing and I I think we should we should all have social housing but that they are also sites of violence like the fact that you are fighting with your housing association days weeks you know to have the tiniest repair that there's spaces of disbelonging that you know the, the loss of dignity and humanity those things exist similarly with our public health and our lives depend on public health but they're also entrenched with eugenics and medical violence and medical racism and so you know the, the imaginary is important because the imaginary of of the public and the public goods didn't hold a lot of bodies queer bodies, um, black and global majority bodies, um, working class bodies, it really was that white, white male or able body that is like a reflection of the imaginary that it holds and maintains. And so that psyche of complicitness and also, you know, that amnesia that the Englishness does so well or Britishness does so well is, is that it can consistently ruptures memory, ruptures story, ruptures narrative and leaves us precarious. So you can't connect those stories. You can't connect the memory and you're either in survival trying to like get through to the next day or that it masks it through the nostalgic period dramas that it constantly is trying to like have us in. We're going to come back to physical spaces, the built environment, social housing. It's such an elemental and important part of the work that you're doing in the world, but also our lived experience and in our daily realities. But I want to hold on to grief for just a moment. I read or heard somewhere years ago that we never really get over grief, but that what actually happens is we expand to accommodate the loss. And I remember like receiving that information and thinking, what a like tremendous, beautiful and generative way to think about loss, right? That our capacity for, you know, emotional resilience is such that we literally grow um, and become bigger in loss, right? But that was a number of years ago and a lot of loss has taken, taken place since then. And so now I'm wondering if that's a bit of a privileged approach to an understanding of grief, because how big can you become? And in the face of such sustained loss and structural loss and intentional loss, I wonder how that understanding of grief resonates with you 
and, and how you might formulate an understanding of grief for us that is more aligned with our experience? Um, firstly, maybe, maybe I can speak to the kind of the role of grief work in a more politicized way. Um, and at Healing Justice London, we brought together a group of doctors, you know, academics, activists um, to actually explore lo- loss, but particularly for racialized folks. Um, as part of um, a unified political strategy because all of us experience loss. Um, and it was called Litany for Survival in, in homage to Audrey Lord, and, and this was pre the pandemic. And we particularly found through a piece that Nina Baswani worked on looking at loss and how in the UK we have no real public infrastructure around loss, but there is a deep relationship to criminalization and loss. So one of the things that we found was a huge m- amount of the adult male prison population had experienced up to six bereavements. And so that was a huge thing where it's like there's a relationship to, you know, the castle structure, policing and bereavement. And we have no real public infrastructure to support. One of the other interesting things in this study that sh- what, what it showed was that when you continue to experience loss and you have no real integration or support around it, you can enter what, in quotations, a non-recovery phase, which then leads to, um, again, quote unquote, like risk-taking behaviour, substance reliance, um, all of these different types of things. And when we think about uh, marginalised communities, racialized folks, we are confronted with loss all the time. And so then we're being criminalized on the ways that we are surviving and coping because there is no apparatus. And so there is a real huge political need for us to engage and build those infrastructures that that attend to loss. And then I think when we think about colonization and and I, I'm someone who in my intimate network, but also my work, deal and you know support a lot of people experience mental distress particularly around um, bereavement particularly around um, loss and multiple types of loss there is something that is really key about how you know even as a nation this again that 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 because we're so disembodied we don't know how to like emote that we don't access our emotional landscapes, that they're gendered, that they're seen as hysterical. And so when people are doing what is native to them is access their emotions in the space of grief, that then those are the spaces that is criminalized. In that moment, people are, aren't attended to with support. And, you know, I remember one of my loved ones recently was um, institutionalized and I went to visit them in the, in the ward um, and they it was really it was a beautiful moment where we we, they were like I'm not crazy everyone else on this ward is crazy look at them this one's doing this this one's doing this this is what I'm sharing the language in 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 the way that they were speaking um um not to 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 pathologize or shame and I, I remember taking a moment back and I said look at that behavior and could that be pain we'll look at this person and maybe what they're doing is an expression of pain I think that moment for them and us and and also for myself of like being able to see pain in its different expressions and the first thing that doesn't happen in my in my mind um isn't going to a, a, a space of demonizing or going into a space of like I need to control this I need to fix this but actually to a more spacious space of like you know that you have this opportunity to give voice 
to this experience that you've had and there's space for it and this is what it looks like and I'm and I think if we're talking about abolition if we're talking about liberation in these like deep dignifying ways then there is this huge emotional emotionality that we have to start to access and whiteness and colonization and racial capitalism benefits from the rupturing of that emotional capacity because then it has to deal with our humanity and our human humanness and, and our aliveness. And so that's one aspect of it that I want to touch on. Well, it and reminds I, me of the it, question that Ruby Sales asks, where does it hurt? Yes, exactly. And, and um, you know, I've worked with many forms of survivors and the thing that you keep hearing is everywhere hurts. Everywhere hurts. And, and so it's important that we find those spaces where we can work with pain, that we can support people to um, also live with pain and and find the moments that they can touch joy and pleasure and and that they're not that they're not that we don't it's not one or the other but that again that range of aliveness is holding and being with I also wanted to kind of touch on that grief conversation grief work right now is so politically strategic for all of us especially when we're trying to have these huge paradigm shifts of collapsing, you know, a racial capitalism, colonization, all of these types of things um, that need to, to die and they need to be stewarded to a loss. And, and so many of us, we are so afraid of endings. We're so afraid of, you know, we don't know what to do, you know, when it, when it comes to relationships or friendships or anything that it feels so destabilizing and legitimately for a lot of for a lot of us where change is so destabilizing and so actually like one of the things that I invite uh, my team at Healing Justice and for us to in our practice to explore is how can we also use grief work as a way to practice completion to know when is enough and to sense that in an embodied way you know when we're when are we full we want to and racial capitalism, when do we know when we're full? When do we know when we're tired? When do we know when we're at capacity? And then how do we have the language and develop and grow the language around that? And so grief work is part of developing that relationship to that, what you had invited us to earlier of that more transformative relationship to loss. And then, you know, especially when we have the far right and with you know global fascism as we have it you know it's not rising it's like we we have it like we're we're in it um where that loss of identity threats of ways of life like today there was something um i forgot the name but someone was sharing how you know essentially these these racist tropes of you know um, everything is changing in London and, uh, you know, you know, the changing of our like neighborhoods and shops and foods. And it's like change is the most fundamental native thing of human experience. And to in to have an entire like psyche and narrative and, and deep thing of, of control, of of domination, of wanting to suppress change, the most fundamental part of like life and, and life force um, and how deeply it's connected to these narratives of of um, of oppression. You know, if we're trying to uninternalize the oppressor and those those parts of us that we've internalized of oppression, then we have to get comfortable with 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 change and being changed and transformed. And grief work is is how we allow the practice of 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 knowing and allowing change to be part of our lives and 
I'll just close on on um, this piece that you said of of you know when we grief you know we expand loss that I've experienced I now live with those people and I think as someone who's spiritually collected they are my ancestors or they're in the unseen and my world has got bigger and I encounter them in different forms I encounter them in when I'm writing and creating and and so I I feel there is an expansion that happens and we we are wanting to interrupt the ways in which loss is unnecessary and as, as a result of structural violence or systemic violence or interpersonal violence so that it's not unnecessary premature loss and also that when we are experiencing loss the ways in which we grieve and 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 experience bereavement um don't aren't criminalized and actually that there were that the right and appropriate support and scaffolding and infrastructure and ecosystems are there so that that loss can be transformative and something we can live with and be enriched by busy being black returns in just a moment anatomy of an ad subconsciously trigger emotions through music perfect define an opportunity imagine talking to millions of people across the u.s like i am now identify a problem creating an audio ad is time consuming Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with Farzana Khan, the tender titan leading the transformative work of Healing Justice London. She and the team are embarking on a two-year program called Rehearsing Freedoms, which builds towards a complete reimagining of our health systems and is inspired by the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I came across a conversation that you were part of for the National Lottery uh, Community Fund called The New Infrastructure. And in it, you're reading an excerpt from a piece of writing that, in which you say, we cannot grow without losing ground. The claiming of our dreams requires losing parts of ourselves. Yet even if we left everything behind, where our people remain is not something we can separate from. Only something to compartmentalize or disassociate. How does one forget the ecology of survival that was our ends? The way in secret we made life worth living because there wasn't any safety beyond this. And this, over the years, has made me observant in things that collapse. And so... I'd like to draw you out on this idea of collapse um, for a moment. I was watching a talk by, uh, I'm newly obsessed with Jack Halberstam. I'm very new to their work. Um, and this talk is about unworlding and a politics of collapse. And it's Jack is specifically talking here about the built environment, how buildings designed to social housing, as, as we've been talking about, estates and what have you, are not fit for actually cultivating community, connection, health, safety, longevity, sustainability. So Jack goes on to talk about um, destruction and collapse and how these, you know, uses two examples of social housing that were kind of very cinematically destructed and blown up so that people could, uh, so that developers could make way for something new and shiny for people who could afford to buy 
new and shiny things. And Jack is looking for a politics of collapse. Um, they say in this talk, quote, there is an argument for making dispossession into a centerpiece of a politics within which freedom is a movement away from ownership, property, and possessing. What if dispossession were the name for a new politics of freedom? What if dereliction were the opposite of real estate capitalism in which everything needs to be new and rebuilt? Intuitively, we think in terms of repair. Jack says repair is a logic of neoliberalism. If the world is as shitty as we think it is, why repair it? These are Jack's words. Let's see what we can pull down. And I've been reflecting on that since I've since I watched that talk. And immediately my fire sign Aries is like, yeah, fuck, tear it all down. You know what I mean? Like, let, let's see what we can tear down. Um, and then today I'm thinking, and then what? Right? You've already got people who are dispossessed, displaced. Tearing everything else around them doesn't actually provide a solution to an existing dispossession. Um, but Jack is an academic, right? He's a theorist. Um, so I'm curious about how you understand the potential, if I can bring you and Jack in conversation together. Cute. <laughs> How do you understand collapse? Thank you for such a great framing and question. Um, a few a few things. So it's really interesting because the Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin is, is one of my favorite books. And so just when you're saying dispossessed, I'm like thinking of it. But there's a line in it which this which says paradise is for those who make paradise. And I love that line. And not in this kind of like biblical, Abrahamic kind of sense of paradise, heaven and hell. But just that you have to be in the work of building in real time the thing that you need. So it's not like this kind of like pearly gates, heaven, paradise. But as we make the paradise, we are in the paradise. So it's a very tactile, ongoing process. Like it's not this thing that is out there, but actually this thing of like us having to build it. So that is just something I'm holding and just like my brain went to that thing. And I think it's part of my own philosophy. Like I'm not waiting. It's like, you know, how James Baldwin says like, how long do we wait for your progress? It's like, we're going to do it and we're going to just do it. And in that, in the process of doing it, we will, we will craft our joy in the rigor and, 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 and hardship. We will also touch pleasure and intimacy and connection and paradise is for those who make paradise. And so I'm holding that and I'll, I'll kind of maybe come back to that, but collapse for me feels, and if I'm connecting to Jack, Jack's work in this way, then um, Audre Lorde says, you know, which of these liberations will I survive? And it's something that like stays with me all the time because it's like, actually, you can't be in a process of ongoing liberation and not die. And there's so many times when I've talked about like, like I feel like I'm dying. And, and if anyone knows me, we're probably on like version 372 of Fazana. And that's, that's really healthy, right? Like it's really healthy that we change and attend to our own funerals and allow ourselves to be transformed. I agree that there are types of losses that need to take place. And um, I also agree that we need uh, different ways of relating to uh, ownership and, and, and actually fundamentally the ways in which we relate. Like that needs to be changed because we do have this deeply um, 
consumptive, extractive, transactional uh, way of relating. And actually, we need a different relational politics, which understands like our deep interdependence, which understands, I think Aurora Levins Morales uses this phrase in medicine stories. She says, ownership shatters ecology. And she's really thinking about it in this deep and profound way that actually you can't own something. And, you know, similarly, as someone who's Muslim and very embedded in a, in a spiritual practice, you can't own something, right? Like that's fundamentally, there's a tasfir of of um, Surah Yasin where it talks about like um, ecology doesn't end at a border or the, the border of your skin or the border of like a nation, but it's like this constant expansive interdependence and as someone who connects with the unseen and different realms and different layers um i don't i think that's a paradigm shift a different way of relating um but also recognizing that we are in this very material world and actually there are fundamental things that people need for for stability like we we all need a safe home we also need and whether the relationship or the way that we access that needs to be ownership that's not what I'm kind of speaking to but we there are fundamental things that we need and you know a lot of lefty uh, friends would say to me like you know nobody should own a home and I'm like have you grown up in social housing have you been homeless have you like experienced the level of precarity that you know so I want us to have more nuance or, or enrichment around this which is actually there are stabilizing things that we need also to take us to collapse so that we don't end up reproducing scarcity and more instability, that from that instability and scarcity, we we don't choose abundant futures. Because what kicks in when we're in those survival spaces of, and this is a physiological thing, is that if we're experiencing precarity, our stress responses have come up, our survival responses have come up. And actually, then from that space, we're not expansive, we're not visioning, we're much more in the self-preservation mode. And so I'm just holding that yes, and like, yes, we want to collapse these things, and how we collapse them in ways that safeguard us, that make us skillful, that make us competent to be able to steward those losses. You know, I've, I've for a while, I've been exploring like, agency and consent be living consensually and like how we do you know build a, a politics of like consensual living and and for me agency is how we present ourselves with new choices and consensual practice and consensual living is how we in between present ourselves with new choices and that is a somatic process that is an embodied you know process especially as communities who have had you know all forms of choice taken away from us um also not being able to trust ourselves because of the ways our bodies have been intervened and brutalized and harmed how do we then be in the practice of being able to choose differently and not from a space of of trauma or being re-traumatized and then how do we practice and where do we practice new choices amongst ourselves when our stress and trauma responses kick in and we live in a world that is constantly kicking it in like because it's not giving us a beat it's constantly like aggressively putting us, us under chronic stress so that we are activated and we are triggered and we are in these states of survival and states and, and none of us are not in it it's just it looks different for for all of us and and so that's the piece that I'm interested in yes to collapse and how do we do that well and how do we do that in a way that is truly a, a rehearsal of freedom like in any in freedoms and takes us closer to that i'm so glad i asked this question by the way because it, it, 
you've provided, I think, that kind of tangible and tactile, as you would say, um, context for collapse. The reality is that we're living among structures, psychic and physical, all muscular, designed to prevent, prohibit, preclude, you know, make precarious. And this drive to let things collapse is one that says, I recognize that is no good for me. And so I will not rebuild what that was, but black or queer or brown, right? I'm leaving that template behind. And so I think I'm understanding this idea that you're putting forward as well, is that as we're imagining together and holding each other and doing that that work that must be done right now of tending to each other's spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being in a multiplicity of ways, that we're then able to recognize when something doesn't need to be repaired, but reimagined. And then we do that work together to rebuild um, in ways that take into account all the learning that we've done together in community. So collapse is part of the ecosystem of abolition, right? It's part of the ecosystem of, you know, our imaginative possibilities. So there's this be- beautiful essay um, called Dying as the Last Stage of Growth. And um, um, and um, Mawalimu Imara, I hope I've pronounced their name right, um, they have said this beautiful phrase, which is abandoning old ways and breaking old patterns. It's a bit like dying, at least dying to the old ways of life for an un- unknown life of an unknown new life of meaning and relationship. But living without change is not living, not at all, not growing. And I think that is so pertinent for this time. Like actually that the change is whether we choose it or not, we're going to be in change times and change is going to be happening. And how can we make that change, the newness serve us? And what are we prepared to like let die that's even living in ourselves to, to allow and open for that the new ways, the fundamentally new ways. The, the pain that these violences um, impart has to be used for something, right? It, it, that it, it's then metabolized into something. And so I think that's what strikes me about your work is that it is at Healing Justice London and beyond, right? With Voices That Shake, with the writing that you do, is it's art making, it's creation, it's art education, right? The, the engaging the imagination in this in the way that you're doing through your work is in order to create new, better, more capacious, more loving, more healthy. You know, a lot of my life is so that the there's a re, Gloria Anzaldúa talks about the artist as la chamana, like the the shaman, the shaman who goes to these depths of the underworld and and then brings and on harvests and um and so the artist role is this deeply transformative transmuting of 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 all of these different facets of ourselves and and the different archetypes that we play out and exist in and so i really do think that there is something not only about like being able to to um like touch that pain and then transform it 
but also stay with that pain, not in a way that we over-identify. And, you know, I know that specifically, I'm just going to do this little bit of rant, like the white art world and the European art world and how it operates right now, and I say this everywhere, is that it uses our pain to feel. Like, that is what the art world all right now um is yeah. yes exactly <laughs> right. and so and i see that all the time so it's not that we i'm not saying that we need to stay there in a way that like it becomes uh you know our trauma and our wounding and becomes the thing that we identify with but actually it's that again returning to so many of the co- common themes of like living with this vastness of human experience vastness of aliveness that then becomes the the empathy touch point the connective touch point that says hey like in its own ways a me too or me possibly or uh, you know i can hold this you know and so that's that that yes to transformation and metabolizing and living with so writer sophie strand offered a really beautiful analysis suggesting that more than just creating from an honest relationship to our pain that we extend to ourselves and others an invitation to quote dance at the edges of our wounds Mm. And I feel like that is also part of what you're doing in the world and what you've just said, right? This integration enables joy where there's also pain. We're building structures, infrastructures, spaces, relationships, collaborations that integrate that pain and open up spaces for us to dance around those wounds, right? Dance as we, as we build anew. You know, what, what made us so afraid of our emotions? What's made us so afraid of our pain? And we think about cultures and traditions that have particular transition points and rights, being able to grow the capacity to like navigate difficulty and, and complexity and, and, and forms of pain. And I'm not saying that we should induce any types of pain or on each other but actually to be able to grow that bandwidth and so I do often think like it's in the service of 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 capitalism and, and neocolonialism and that we we don't feel and that we were taught that the ways in which we emote and feel are are, are un- unintelligent that they are hysterical that they are barbaric but actually being able to reconnect with that that depth and and the intelligence in that those spaces like um is 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 fundamentally about what again that point of humanizing against the dehumanizing that is ongoingly taking place and that is a really powerful resistance that is a powerful like act of, of liberation so really and, and you know i think of like um kevin kwashi says um for me literature is a way of knowing that i'm not hallucinating that whatever I feel and know is is an affirmation that sensuality is intelligence. The sensual language is a language that makes sense. And I just, again, Kevin does it, like does the whole thing, but just this point of like, what are the worlds of open up when we allow ourselves to be connected to more of those sites of connection and wholeness? And that feels exciting. I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm right alongside everyone else, the listeners, you, I'm curious about what else is out there, what else is possible, and for us to be skilled enough to 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 explore it, like choose our adventures, to to be able to vision and realize, um, because we've got the bandwidths and we've not stayed small and shrunken, and because we've been afraid of and be made to be afraid of all these different experiences and um, 
when an unknowns and uncertainties show up. So that excites me. That feels like a beautiful place to end. Yes. <laughs> Farzana, as usual, I am enchanted. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing in the world. Um, I'm really grateful that we're in each other's orbit. And I'm supremely grateful that you've come on to Busy Being Black to offer your wisdom, um, your embodiedness, <laughs> your more than humanness um, to me and Busy Being Black's listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, I adore you with my soul. And I thank you for making these spaces for us and just the way that you've, the care and the thoughtfulness to be able to help us find new stories in ourselves and to be able to share that with everyone else so just thank you for busy being black being such a gorgeous and stunning gift to all of us thank you thank you farzana khan is a writer cultural producer and award-winning arts educator you'll find more information about farzana healing justice london and rehearsing freedoms in the show notes busy being black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.